You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. It's uh, fabulous to be back for another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I'm Paul Garner. And I'm Todd Wood. And uh, if you are joining us uh, as a regular, um, it's great to have you back. If you're new here, um, do remember to uh, click the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, um, and do spread the word. Tell, Tell your friends all about the podcast. All of that is enormously helpful to us. We have um, a great episode, I think, lined up here. Um, This is a topic that I've been looking forward to talking about, and uh, it's a jam-packed episode, so we're going to kind of leap straight into it. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about a topic that I think many creationists don't talk about very much, and I must confess it's not a topic that I have um, tended to give a great deal of thought to, Um, but we're going to be thinking about the Tower of Babel. And uh, immediately, uh, as I say, the Tower of Babel, um, something occurs to me, which is uh, a difference in pronunciation. Right. Um, Our American listeners. Is it? Yeah. Is it Babel, right? Our American (laughs) listeners know it as Babel, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Babel or Babel. Um, And, you know, it's I say tomato, you say tomato, let's call the whole thing off. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I guess... You know, is that difference just a, a transatlantic difference? Is it just American English versus British English, or is there something sort of deeper, more deeper of Probably. significance to our differences there? Uh, we were chatting with a student of Hebrew uh, earlier, and he thinks it's Babel, so we're uh, all wrong. So maybe we're both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we're Oops. all wrong. Well. Uh, well. I'm going to stick with Babel because it's okay. what I know and it's it's how um, we tend to pronounce it here. And I'm going to you stick will with probably say Babel. Yeah, I'm going to say Babel. Because <laughs> I'm an American and that's what we talk yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Tower of Babel, that yeah. is the topic for today. And uh, it's it's a huge topic. There's, there's so much to cover. I'm not sure we're going to sort of fit all of this into one episode. So we may come back and revisit it. We'll, we'll see. Um, But of course, when we um, think about the Tower of Babel, we immediately think about the confusion of the languages of, you know, the confusion of human languages. But there's actually a great deal more to the Babel narrative than that. Um, As you look at the Babel account, it seems to be a kind of pivotal event in the biblical narrative with some pretty far-reaching implications, I think. And so we want to sort of explore some of those ideas today. And we thought that perhaps a good place to begin would actually be to read the account itself, um, because it's quite a short account. It's uh, found in Genesis uh, chapter 11, and uh, it runs from verses 1 through to 9. So... You know, it's not many verses. Right. And I thought it would be good to, you know, for it to be fresh in our minds and in our listeners' minds. So I'm I'm going to just read those nine verses. I'm okay. reading from the authorized King James Version. Um, but if you have a Bible, you know, as you listen to this, you can follow in whatever version you've got in front of you. 
So Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So it's a, a fascinating account. It, uh, as I say, it's a very short account. Yep. And one of the first things that I think we probably ought to do, Todd, is try to set this account in some kind of context. So what comes before, what comes immediately after, yeah. and where does this narrative fall in that overall sort of story of the early history of the Earth? Yeah. J- just fill us in a bit on that, please. Yeah, that's a that's a challenging question. So with with creation and the genealogies that are listed uh, in Genesis five and eleven, you you do have a kind of chronological place to put it right and with the flood mm-hmm. it's the, the flood account is very specific about not only not only when it took place uh how old noah was but how long noah was on the ark right so there's a there's a time marker when he gets on and a time marker when he gets off so we know where that goes Babel is a bit more vague right so there's no there's no clear Mm -hmm. time marker here so what comes before this is the table of nations which is genesis chapter 10 Mm -hmm. it is the story of the sons of noah and their descendants it is not like the uh the genealogy that follows the tower of babel account which is much more similar to what you see in genesis 5 where you have a pretty much a straight linear uh, patrilineal line that's given and then you have ages of the patriarchs when they fathered their their child the son and so you can add those up and figure out how long is supposed to have taken place uh, so yeah so Genesis 10 is more along the lines of something that a genealogy where you just have a list of names and, and this is this person descended from this person and and yeah so that's that's a bit different and then as I said immediately following this passage is the Genesis 11 genealogy which is more specific more chronological and then right after that 
that, I mean, that genealogy leads us straight to Abram and the story of Abram, the call of Abram in Genesis 12, and the beginning of the story of Israel. So mm. it fits in there somewhere, right? So you start with the yep. sons of Noah, and they have children, and there's tribes, and then there's this story of the Tower of Babel, and then that leads you into the story of Abraham. And it's a bit, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really open questions on exactly how how we should fact figure this into that account and and what exactly it means. Hmm. Yeah. So we've so we've got Genesis 10, which is this thing that we refer to as the table of nations. Mm-hmm. And that's really um tracing the descendants of the three sons of Noah. So we've got Shem, Ham and Japheth. Right. Um and then we have the Babel account. And then we go into this, like you say, this more specific um, genealogy. So that's kind of the family line of Shem. That comes immediately after the Babel account. That's right. And we trace that family line right down to Abram. Yep. And then we're into the story of Abram, the the call of Abram to leave his home, to go to a land that the Lord is going to show him. Right. And in the middle of all of this, we've we've got these nine verses about the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And it strikes me, you know, as I think about that, that Babel is this really sort of pivotal passage. There's a kind of transition here in in the biblical narrative. So up until this point in the the, um, Genesis story, we've been dealing with events that are surrounding the whole of humanity. So we've We've got the creation of the first humans, Adam and Eve, Mm -hmm. and then we've got the story of their descendants right down to Noah, and then we have the worldwide flood and uh, the destruction of of the whole of that pre-flood humanity apart from the eight eight people preserved on the ark. And then we've got the repopulation of of the world after the flood um, by the sons of Noah and their descendants. And here at Babel, we've got the scattering of the people, the confusion of the languages. And then there's a kind of big shift of focus. Yeah, exactly. So the big shift of focus is now right down to a particular family and, in fact, to a particular man, to a particular person, Abram. And we kind of zoom in and we sort of focus then on Abram's story. So Babel sort of marks this point of transition this shift of focus from the whole of humanity right. to this one man. Right. And uh, so, so it's a really important passage, I think, for, for, for that reason. And, of course, we also, um, in the Table of Nations, which, of course, we haven't read, but I guess, you know, our listeners can go and read that later. Sure. In verse 25 in Genesis chapter 10, we have this sort of intriguing, almost throwaway line about this man called Peleg, Peleg yeah. um, who is the son uh, of Eber. He is the brother of Joktan. And uh, we're told that it was in his day that the earth was divided. And of course, that's occasioned an enormous amount of discussion <laughs> and debate as yeah. well. It's this kind of intriguing reference. Um, and I guess we will come back 
uh, at some point to think about that, to think about exactly what that means and how it relates to Babel, if it relates to Babel at all, because, you know, some people disagree about that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so hopefully all, all of that just sort of helps to set the scene, you know, for the conversation that we're, we're going to have today. And uh, it leads on, of course, to the crucial question, what does it all mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that, that's kind of a summary of what, what, the, what the text tells us. And surprisingly, there's an enormous amount of disagreement about uh, what this means, even among uh, young age creationists. And, and that itself is quite interesting. Um, we've already mentioned Peleg and, you know, that, that there's the division of the earth in his days. And th that's been understood in a whole variety yeah. of different ways. Um, there's even disagreement about whether the events of Babel um, are something that actually did, you know, happened to the whole of humanity. So are we talking about the totality of Noah's descendants after the flood or whether it was something that was a, a local or regional event? Was it something that happened to only a subset of Noah's descendants at some time after the flood? Now, Todd, you know, this, this is a, th this area, this, this whole um, issue of Babel, I know is something that you have given quite a lot of thought to, right. I guess, partly because of your interest in the human fossil record and how that fits into um, the post-flood context. Um, so what do you think it means? <laughs> you know, start, start to sort of unpack that for us. And, you know, we've already touched a little bit on this issue of chronology. Can we kind of read these chapters, G Genesis chapter 10, then Genesis chapter 11, in a kind of rigidly linear chronological fashion? Or is there something else going on? Right, yeah. So there's, so one question is, you know, is this, is... Babel happening after Genesis 10, right? The Table of Nations. And then if you read the Table of Nations, you'll see in multiple verses, it refers to um, the descendants of, of the uh, sons of Noah according to their tribes and clans and language, right? So mm -hmm. Genesis 10 seems to imply, well doesn't imply it says there's already languages there are languages among these mm. these different descendants and um and so when you get to genesis 11 if you think that that happens after the events the events of genesis 10 then this is not a story of the origin of language it's the story of a particular group of people who are um being particularly punished by god uh, and then, of course, as you mentioned, there are those creationists who also want to make it limited. So if you do think of this in a sort of a chronological fashion where Genesis 10 happens and then Genesis 11 happens, then you're probably prone to think this must be just some of the descendants, right? This must be people who lived, you know, wherever, and, and maybe they're the, the Semitic descendants of, of um, Noah, the family of Shem, and so that's what this story is about. Uh, I think that's not right. <laughs> I tend to think that the, um, the division of Peleg is 
the Tower of Babel. I think that the, the those nine verses of chapter 11 are a, a bit of a rewind, if you will, to fill us in on what happened, that these descendants of Noah should end up speaking different languages like that. I see this happening kind of frequently in Scripture. We in the West mm. tend to have a much more, I think, linear and ordered view of the way that written works should tell stories, but I don't see that that well in in uh, the Hebrew Old Testament. So what I see there is, for example, Genesis 2 rewinds to tell us the story of things that are happening on the sixth day of creation with the creation of mm. of Adam and Eve and the and the and the planting of the garden. Um, I see another really great example would be in Genesis 6. In fact, throughout the flood narrative, you have a number of places where the story just pauses and then tells you what it just told you in other words, right? So it's sort of filling in some more detail that you didn't get the first time. The first place this happens, you go read Genesis 6, 1 through 8. It's talking about the condition of the world uh, before the flood and how the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they took wives and then there were the Nephilim in the earth. And God says, every thought of man's heart is only evil continually. I will destroy them in a flood. And that ends with Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then immediately after that, you have, it, it seems to rewind. God calls Noah and tells him what he's going to do. Look, Noah, everybody is really wicked and I don't like it and I'm unhappy with it. So I'm going to destroy the world in a flood. So you get this complete repetition of what you just read. And then God yeah. says, oh yeah, and then I want you to build an ark. And then it builds on that. So... I tend to look at the way the Bible tells stories like that as I don't have to think that these sort of little detached narratives have to be read in a perfectly sequential fashion, that this one happens after that one, after that one, after that one. There's a sort of broad agreement, but in the case of Genesis 10, I do think Babel is the Babel story is rewinding to tell us what happened, and that the division of the earth in the days of Peleg is, in fact, the Tower of Babel. And that means, yeah. I tend to think, when it says the whole earth was of one language and all the people went to Shinar to build this tower in this city, that that really does probably mean everybody. Uh, that there yeah. may have, Whether there were stragglers uh, off living on their own, hermits and antisocial people, I'm not real sure. But the vast majority of people were living in Babel and building that tower and building that city. Yeah, that that's really helpful. So in, in effect, we've got these kind of, if you like, flashbacks or recaps, yeah. you know, a bit like in a TV drama where... Okay. You know, you kind of tell the story and then occasionally you get these kind of flashbacks that then fill in some details that you you, you perhaps weren't told the first time round. Right, right. And the Bible authors, you know, that that they're, they're often doing similar things. So so that that's very helpful. And of course, that, like you say, it does help to determine exactly how we read and understand exactly what's going on here. So. Let's um, perhaps just try and dig into that then just a little bit 
more. So okay. uh, when we read this account, so you say that this probably does, you know, include the whole of humanity. Uh, is this the origin of human ethnic and cultural diversity? Do we trace all of that back to Babel? Is this the origin of all of the different languages? Um, you know, how far can we go with this, Todd? Yeah, that's a, and that that is in my book kind of the open question, right? How does this relate to? How does it relate to the origin of people around the world? How does it relate to what we see in the archaeological record? How does it relate to mm. uh, what we know about languages? Um, I'd say sort of a first approximation here. I don't see in this passage an origin of every language on the planet, right? Right. So I don't think there was some tribe coming out of Babel that spoke English um, because <laughs> we know, yeah. I mean, we, and this isn't even controversial. We just have, you can pick up the 1611 King James. You can pick up the 1540 Geneva Bible. You can get a copy of um, Wycliffe's translation from much earlier. Uh, and you can see how the language, the English language has changed. Uh, and then yeah. people who actually study English uh, and linguistics can tell you about the various places that English has changed significantly from its original sort of Germanic origin as a as sort of a shoot offshoot of German um, or a cousin of modern German. Let's call it that. Um, so I have I I have no problem with the idea that languages are are constantly changing. Um, that that Babel and its confusion may have produced certain what we might think of as proto-languages, forerunners of modern language, but not in any sense the languages that we have today. So there wasn't anybody there speaking Swahili or Arabic or anything like that. <laughs> this was... Yeah. This these were older languages. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that, so, that would be my so, first. So so yeah. So so Babel is not the origin of French and Spanish yeah. and German, no. but it might be the origin of perhaps the broader language families within which those uh, specific languages have subsequently arisen. Is is that kind of the picture that you you think we're given? I think that's. <laughs> As best as we can guess, right? So what yeah. we know. So here's here's a few things that we know. We know, for example, that um, the, they were confused. The people were confused mm -hmm. and they were scattered. Uh, now, there's some question, I think, in, in my mind. Is this two different things happening or just one, right? So is it okay. a confusion and a scattering or is it a scattering because of a confusion? Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that linguistics has taught us is that when people of different languages get together and want to carry on business together, the language differences don't stop them. Uh, mm. They generally will form what's called a pigeon, 
which is mm-hmm. a a very small vocabulary, a couple hundred words, where uh, these are used to carry on commerce. Whatever businesses that you want to carry on with some people, you can create this pigeon. And uh, so you can have your own language that you learn in your in your among your people and then then you have this pigeon that you talk um so the in that respect i i think the tower of babel story is kind of surprising because a little bit to me because if they really were committed to building this city and this tower why didn't they just carry on in spite of their language confusion so I tend to think there's got to be more to this story than than what we're than what we're told here. So that's sort of the first approximation of what we have there in Genesis 11. Yeah. Fast forward, for example, to the time of Joseph. Right. Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt. Joseph is now whatever vice pharaoh, whatever position it was he had, and um, prime minister of Pharaoh's court or whatever, and. He is able to speak Egyptian with his Egyptian Mm. friends and the brothers cannot understand him. So by that point, at the very least, Egyptian is sufficiently different from uh, from that Canaanite or Hebrew language they were speaking um, that they can't really understand it anymore and they need a translator. Uh, So... Yeah, so that's those are sort of some, some, and I'm waving my hands because it's a lot of hand waving. <laughs> we have these yeah. these little snippets of the text that tell us a little bit about what's going on, and we have this event of confusion, and then eventually you have this indication that indeed there is a different language in Egypt than there is in Canaan, and and. Mm-hmm. Arame- Aramean descendants and so forth. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, and what what's becoming clear to me as we have this conversation is how many unknowns there are. Yeah. Um, and how much potential there is as well for creationist scholars to do more work in this area and, you know, to dig into some of these questions and see, you know, whether we can help to resolve some of them. So. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I I wanted to rewind just just briefly sure. here, um, uh, because we, we we we're talking about the whole of humanity being of one language, one speech mm-hmm. at the time of Babel. What do you think was the situation before the flood? I mean, we're dealing here with the situation after the flood, where these people are descended from Noah and his three sons, from essentially one family. So you can kind of understand that they're all speaking the same language. What was the situation before the flood? Was there language diversity before the flood? Um, was everybody speaking exactly the same language for that whole pre-flood period? What, what do you think about that? I Yeah, it's a good question. So I know that if you know, if we look at the numbers in the Hebrew text of the scripture, we add them up, you get sixteen hundred years from sixteen hundred fifty-six years, I think it is, between mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Adam's creation and the the day that Noah stepped on the ark. Sixteen hundred plus or minus six months, whatever it is. Uh, so 
So that's a long time. Um, if you look at the history of modern language, for example, you will notice that time period we went from, well, continental Europe at least, went from speaking uh, Latin, you know, 400 AD, people were still, Latin was still a living language. People were still using it and learning it uh, to speaking uh, the big five, right? The five Romance languages, Romanian and uh, Italian, uh, French, Spanish, and Portuguese. Uh, and those are all fairly different languages. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, but they're, yeah. they're, they're distinct languages. No one, I think, today would ever question that. So... Um, there is room there for a lot of language diversity to happen before the flood. And yeah. did they have different languages? I, I guess it would depend on how widespread they got, right? I think it is in the, the localization of people, right, where they are widely separated and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of people moving back and forth. There are people moving back and forth, right? To carry on trade and whatever, but there's not a lot of people doing that. Most people are staying where they are. That's where that's where those individual differences come into play. Babel and Babel mm -hmm. being a great example. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're barely, we're not even 250 years old, America, United States. Um, we've been over here in the colonies since the probably the, the 1600s. Uh, early 1600s. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at 400 years separation of our language. And we already have differences, right? <laughs> and and it's fascinating to me. You come over to uh, America for one of the first times and there's on the menu biscuits and gravy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which... Yeah, that means something very different here. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, yeah, so could they have spoken different languages back then? I, I suppose it's possible if they had, if there were enough of them and they had spread out and, and become separated, then yeah, I suppose it's possible that they had, that there were different languages before the flood. You've been listening to Todd and Paul Talk Creation. If you'd like more information on sponsorship opportunities, or maybe you'd like to have a product or book reviewed or discussed on our podcast, please contact us at podcast at corsi.org. That's podcast at corsi.org. If you would like more information about what we discussed today, be sure to check out our show notes at corsi.org slash podcast. That's corsi.org slash podcast. You've mentioned their kind of geographical separation and the role that it might play in, you know, generating language diversity. I, I suppose the other factor that we have to take into account, particularly when we're thinking about that pre-flood world, is the longevity of the people. Because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you also have a lot of continuity between generations. So I think if you look at the genealogical information, Adam and Eve's son, Seth, his lifespan actually overlaps with the lifespan of Noah. Right. I, I, I you know, so... So again, perhaps that would have the opposite um, effect of perhaps promoting um, stability yeah. in uh, languages be because of that 
enormous overlap in terms of lifespans but sure yeah yeah it's that's a fascinating discussion but but whatever you know happened in that pre-flood world um you know even if there was language diversity it looks as if after the flood there was essentially language uniformity right because the whole of the human population was reduced to essentially one family on on the ark that's right um so so that seems to be the situation that we have then in 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 the immediate post-flood world um the the other topic that i just sort of wanted to talk to you about and this one gets us into some very controversial sort of territory potentially Uh but it's to do with (laughs) ethnic diversity diversity and um yeah there are all kinds and have been all kinds of well often quite disturbing interpretations of what's going on in genesis chapter 9 yes uh and the passage concerning the curse on canaan right um do you want to just talk to us a bit about some of that i mean first of all perhaps you should just tell us what the narrative in genesis 9 is right yeah, so the, so the story there is fairly simple. Noah plants a vineyard, he makes wine, he gets drunk, passes out in his tent, he's naked, and apparently his grandson Canaan, son of Ham, uh, comes along, finds him, and it's not exactly clear what's going on. He goes and tells some people, and I, I get the sense that this was a disrespectful thing rather than trying to deal with it. And so you have um, the other brothers back their way in with a blanket and cover up Noah so they don't see him. Uh, Noah wakes... There's, there's, some kind of sub- there's some kind of subtext going on yeah. there that is perhaps quite hard for us moderns to kind of fully understand. Yes, yes. There's, there's something going on there with, with what Canaan does. Yes, it's something that's... Like you say, is disrespectful in some way. Not, it's not yeah. written out for us that he... Made fun of him, or he should have done something that he didn't do, or something like that. And so when Noah wakes up, he's he's angry and he curses Ham and Canaan and says uh, that they will be uh, servants, slaves of their brothers, the brothers. Um, and so yeah, when you come to uh, the the sort of medieval ideas about humanity, you have a lot of, basically, people think in terms of nations and tribes, right? So you have a recognition of a lot of diversity, and there you go. And it's not uh, not especially horrifying. It isn't really until Europeans start enslaving Africans that discussion of ethnic diversity and differences becomes perhaps more sinister and overtly racist. Uh, I, there's probably racism. I, I would think there's humans are always distrustful of other people, right? And we always think our, our group is better than everybody else. So there's always going to be that subtext. But once once there's sort of this systematic enslavement of Africans, uh, everything that, essentially everything that follows, the birth of anthropology as a science, is essentially racist. 
uh, and horrifically so. So that when you read when you read 19th century anthropology, it's appealing to uh, Genesis in various ways uh, to describe why black Africans ought to be enslaved and mistreated and treated like animals, essentially. Uh, so, yeah, so the curse on Canaan is probably the most common of those things where they, they would say the curse is manifested in the black skin. And so if someone's black, they deserve to be enslaved. And yeah, it's, it's, it's sickening um, when you have to sort of sort through this because you're reading stuff that as a creationist, I'm thinking this is really interesting. They're talking about all these cultures and how they're related to modern cultures. And then you get to Ham and Canaan and this slavery apologetics. And it suddenly takes this horrific, awful turn for just the absolute worst. And so it's a mess. It's a, it's a mess. So when you think today, when I'm trying to think about the diversity of ethnic groups in the modern world and where they might come from and how they might relate to, to what we read in Genesis uh, 11, I'm always, I feel very wary and very cautious <laughs> about any of this mm. because if it's, ugly and tainted past, the way that the Bible has been misused to uh, justify um, some really wicked, ongoing, mm -hmm. centuries-long behavior. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so, so that's a kind of uh, salutary caution that we kind of need to tread carefully here where we uh, deal with these kinds of topics. But I think it ultimately is, um, it does seem to be the case that uh, something of ethnic and cultural diversity is one of the consequences of the Babel event. Um, we're not quite sure, you know, exactly how yeah. that worked out, how that played out. But, um, and, you know, some have speculated that actually this confusion of languages is not simply a confusion of words you know you can translate words right so but it's it's also to do with um viewpoints ways of thinking um and that's often very tied up with language yes um your kind of perspective your your outlook yes and perhaps this you know helps to explain what seems to be this sudden emergence of often quite diverse cultures in terms of art and yep. technology and worship and all, all kinds of things that, that you know often these these civilizations that then emerge in the uh sort of aftermath of the babel event um almost appear to be sort of fully fledged um, cultures yeah. that, that that have arisen, and that may have a lot to do with this um, cultural outlook, this sort of perspective that goes along with um, the confusion of the languages. Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, so that's yeah, that's very that's very interesting. Maybe that's a that's a further discussion <laughs> that you know we can unpack that another time. But I, I also. Um, wonder now whether we could start to sort of perhaps get into some of the details 
about Babel itself. Um, and there are some specific questions that people often want to know the answer to. Um, one of which is, you know, where was Babel? Um, can we identify a particular location on the surface of the earth and say that that's where Babel took place? Yeah. Um, and another big question is, when did it take place? We've already kind of hinted uh, that it took place in the days of Peleg, but when was that? Um, and, you know, can, can we kind of pin that down a bit more? So perhaps let's begin with the, the question of location. Um, perhaps you could just start to, you know, unpack that a bit more for us. Yeah. Is there, is there something that we can say sensibly about that? Yeah. So when you read the, the text itself, it does give you a pretty clear um, indication of where it is. It is in the plain, a plain in the land of Shinar. And it is, it is a place called Babel. And people have uh, accepted for a long time, this goes back way far, that this is referring to the ancient city of Babylon. Uh, do you say Babylon? <laughs> no, Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> the ancient city of Babylon. It's it's pretty clear those words those words are very specific in the Old Testament, so it's really not it's really not a not a question, I think, among among Bible scholars about where where this should be um placed so yeah uh it appears to be babylon and i don't really okay. have any good reason to argue uh against that i i the only thing that i the that concerns me and that i wonder about paul could you can you read you have the authorized version there still i do handy yeah can you read just verse two Yep, Genesis 11 and verse 2 says, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Okay, yeah, that's exactly what I have. I'm, I've got the English Standard Version here on my phone, and it says they migrated mm -hmm. from the east. Okay, now, if that's the case, right, we yeah. are looking for people being in some place farther east of Babylon, right? And if that's the case, you are now getting into the Zagros Mountains, uh, the what is now the land of um, Iran. Uh, and if you were to look for the mountains of Ararat, where the Ark is said to have landed, uh, that is in the ancient kingdom of Urartu, which is north. I, I've mm. tried, you know, if you draw the whole boundaries of the land of the kingdom of Urartu, <laughs> you cannot really get them east of Babylon. It is north of Babylon. It is straight up north. Uh, so, yeah, I think that raises some interesting geographic questions. So there's people, I've seen scholars argue that maybe the, the, the preposition from the east could be understood in terms of the perspective of 
uh, the author of the text who is in, say, Sinai or the much farther western ancient Near East so that Ararat and Babylon are both in the east, right? So they are migrating from the east because it's all east. Um, that's an interesting idea. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a puzzle. I, I don't know exactly how to resolve that right now because it would seem that the Ark, the landing place of the Ark and where the people were getting off the Ark was farther to the north than, yeah. than Babylon. Yeah. Is it, uh, I, I don't know the Hebrew language at all. Uh, I mean, is there any ambiguity in Hebrew um, prepositions? Um, you know, can, can, do we clearly know that, that this is from, from the, the east, east and not to the east yeah. or in the east? Or, I, I, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I, that would be a, that would be a question we could ask a Bible scholar if we could get him on here. But, yeah. but from what I have read, there are people who say that there's a bit of ambiguity in that preposition, that it could be okay in the east they were migrating. Uh, but, okay. but I, I've heard other people just sort of shrug that off and say, no, it's from the east. That's what it says. That's what that word means. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's a good question. So s- some other kind of related questions, just to sort of dig into this a little bit more. Um, I suppose the most radical idea that I have in the back of my head is, you know, c- could the consensus be wrong in identifying Babel with Babylon um, and the land of Shinar with Mesopotamia? Uh, you know, to what extent is that uh, or are those identifications embedded in a particular reconstruction of Earth history? And to what extent might we as creationists want to even go back to basics and rethink that? You know, you, you said you don't really have any good reason to, to question it, but is it something that we should keep on the table? I, you know, we can always keep things on the table and always, I think it's always healthy to be asking questions of the scripture to make sure that we understand it and to make sure that um, we are not misinterpreting. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask those big, scary questions from time to time. Um, But, you know, when I look into the history of interpretation, so this is one of the ways that I like to examine how texts have been understood the idea that this is Babylon is very old uh, in the church and in even in Hebrew. I think even Josephus understands this to be Babylon. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I don't find a lot of wiggle room there. Um, yeah, with such I a see. with such a long standing unanimous uh, understanding of what this is supposed to represent. Yeah. Yeah. Tradition is not always right. No, that's right. Quite but quite often there's a very good reason why it's a tradition. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> so we so we yeah, so we have to kind of uh, think carefully ab- about that. The the other the other question, I mean going back even further is the question of where was Ararat? Um where was the landing place of the ark? Yes. And I 
I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that. I mean, my my understanding is that we we basically don't know for certain that right. the, the biblical text itself is somewhat unspecific because it it doesn't talk about a particular mountain peak. It it talks about um, the mountains of Ararat, yes, which seems right. to specify more of a region. Yes, um, and uh, the traditional landing site of the Ark, which is a peak in eastern Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually, at least from a creationist perspective, it's a post-flood mountain. It's yes. it's a volcanic yes. mountain yes. Um, that probably didn't exist at the time of the flood or at the end of the flood. Um, and so that, I think, makes that identification problematic. And I, I think I'm right in saying that it's actually only been known as the biblical Ararat in relatively recent times. Um, uh, I, I think the tradition of calling it Ararat goes back to about the 12th century or okay. something like that. But if that's recent to you, um, then yes, I, I agree. <laughs> well, re, re, recent in the sense that it, you know, it it doesn't go right back to the, you know, c- closer to the time of the flood sure, itself. Sure, you know that that sure. it is a relatively modern right. um, identification, and of course, if you read the literature there have been a range of different possible identifications of Ararat um, that have been proposed and and discussed so there is some ambiguity I think about exactly where we think Ararat was and then of course the other question is uh, you know we're we're assuming that perhaps the people didn't migrate too much didn't move around between the time of the end of the flood and the Babel event. Right. So, yeah. you know, do we know that maybe they did move around quite, quite substantially before this Babel event happens mm. and they journey from the, from the East. Maybe it's a little, it's a little fuzzy, right? So verse one, yeah. verse one says now the whole earth had one language in the same words. Uh, and then verse two, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So are the people the whole earth or are they just some people? Mm. And yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, I tend to think if this is the the genesis of language, if you will, that that's probably going to be most of the people there. Um, most of the people in existence at the time were at Babel. Uh, but I think it's sufficiently non-specific that that could be open to question. That you could have some people who decided, uh, "I'm just going to go live in the mountains by myself and <laughs> forget you people." Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I'm 400 years old yeah. now, and I'm tired of living with people, so I'm going to go in the mountains. And... <laughs> I get it, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, another sort of related question uh, to this question of, you know, the identification of Babel with Babylon is this idea, which is a very, you know, common one, uh, that the Tower of Babel was um, something called a ziggurat. Ah, yes. And I wonder if we could just talk about that 
for, for a bit. You know, if you open any kind of Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia and you read about the Tower of Babel, you will read about um, Babylonian uh, ziggurats. Yep. And you'll often see these uh, images of uh, ziggurats, um, just for the benefit of our listeners who may not know. Um, a ziggurat is kind of a large pyramid, roughly pyramid-shaped mm-hmm. uh, structure, um, usually terraced, usually has kind yeah. of steps to it. So it looks kind of squarish um, or sort of cubish. Yeah, kind yeah. of squarish. It's not yeah. like a pyramid in, in yeah. Egypt. It's Yeah, it's got those terraces yeah. on it, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of stepped, and there are some surviving examples or partial examples in places like um, uh, Baghdad and Ur mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. other places. And it's thought that they were basically centers of cultic worship. Mm-hmm. They were temples. Um, there'd be a priestly class that perhaps would go, you know, the gods would were thought to dwell at the top of these structures and maybe sacrifices would be made, devotions would be made um, to the, the gods. So that's kind of what a ziggurat uh, is or was. Uh, do you think that the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat? And maybe even more specifically, can we point to a particular ziggurat and say... That's the Tower of Babel. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, I tend to say that any of the ziggurats that are that are um, surviving in ruins today are probably too young for being the Tower of Babel. Uh, certainly the ziggurat at Babylon. And here's a little bit of interesting history for you. The Ziggurat of Babylon was in ruins uh, during the uh, period of the kings of Judah. And Mm. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the things that he did, uh, and this is sort of a little bit reflected in what the Bible has to say, but Nebuchadnezzar is is known as a great builder. Uh, So when Mm. Nebuchadnezzar comes along and conquers... Uh, conquers a bunch of nations and a bunch of city-states and makes Babylon his capital. One of the building projects he initiated was to rebuild the ziggurat of Babylon. And it takes decades, uh, but it is finished. And there is a record. There's It's called the Tower of Babel Stila. It is in a private collection. But it has a, it's an ancient depiction of what the, the ziggurat of Babylon would have looked like. Um, and of course, you know, if we're, if we're thinking in creationist terms and putting the, the Tower of Babel at the sort of dawn of the nations uh, right after Noah, uh, th- yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's way too late. This is not the Tower of Babel. But what's interesting to me about the Tower of Babel, Stila, is that Nebuchadnezzar is writing, it's basically written in his voice, right? And he's bragging about how he built this tower. He's bragging about how he raised its top to heaven. He's bragging about how he brought all these people from the far earth, for all these nations and tribes, together to Babylon 
to build this tower, right? So there's this really interesting, I think, parallel, if you will, with the way the Bible describes the Tower of Babel. And so, you know, your modern critical scholar reads that and he's, he, he's arguing or she's arguing uh, that the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis is written as a satire of Nebuchadnezzar's ziggurat that he was building. And so the reason that you have this, this parallel is because the author of Genesis is mocking Nebuchadnezzar, which strikes me as a really weird way of doing it because anybody could go to Babylon and see the ziggurat and they would know, oh, well, there's the Tower of Babel. This is not, it is what's described in that text is literally the opposite of what happened, right? So to me, then, I think it makes more sense that Nebuchadnezzar is, this is part of his arrogance and part of his bragging, right? And we see that in in Daniel when he is humbled and turned into a, a driven mad for a period of time because he is bragging about how he has done all these things. And so here's this here's this record of this extra biblical record of Nebuchadnezzar bragging about building this tower. And I think the subtext and the 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 subtext is that he has brought the captives to Babylon. This this rebuilding of the ziggurat is happening during the captivity. He's brought the captives there. They brought with them their scrolls. He knows, he is familiar with what's in those scrolls. So he is bragging yeah. about what he has accomplished that Yahweh, the God of, of Israel, has tried to prevent. Uh, that he brought the people back from their scattered locations he made them build and commence building this tower and he finished it and he raised its top to heaven in ways that the, that the Genesis uh, story indicates that God prevented from happening. So yeah. is it a ziggurat? Is it the ziggurat of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built? No, I don't think so. I think Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's rebuilding <laughs> the ruined tower of Babel. Um, so yeah. I, I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that it's a ziggurat. If it is a ziggurat, it's definitely mm. the very first one ever. So, Yeah. And I think what you say there about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, ziggurat, that, that kind of makes a lot of sense to me that he's kind of riffing off the, the, yeah. the accounts that he already knows that the Hebrews have and sort of bragging about it. Um, and of course, you know, f- from a higher critical perspective, they can kind of they can kind of go with their particular kind of spin on it yeah. because they think that the book of Genesis was written sometime around the time of the Babylonian captivity or, or, or just after yeah. the return to the land. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, you know, from a traditional perspective, that's that's just way too late. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Moses couldn't possibly be the author or compiler of Genesis in that case. Yeah. Um, so, so that it's problematic, I think, at you know lots of different levels from from a more sort of conservative perspective. But um, yeah, I, I think what you said there make, makes a great deal of sense. Now, Todd. Time is kind of running out for it this is. episode, and there are lots of other things that I would like to talk about. I'd like to talk um, more about the dating, particularly mm-hmm. of uh, uh, of the Tower of Babel. Um, I'd like to talk about its relationship to, for example, human 
fossils, the human fossil record and the archaeological record. And we could talk some more about um, language development and exactly also what, you know, what happened at, at Babel? What was the nature of the confusion of the languages? And I mean, there's a whole host of other questions I, I have lined up here. But I think what we'll do is for now, we'll kind of break there. Okay. And I would like us to come back and yeah. talk some more about this because, uh, as I say, this is not a topic that I've given a lot of consideration to. And I'm finding this just as fascinating as I'm sure our listeners are as well. So we will come back to this uh, topic at some point. So uh, stay tuned for that. Okay, Todd, what have we got coming up uh, next episode? Well, we don't quite know, do we? Because we're not absolutely know. certain what order these episodes are going to go out right. in. So, so let's kind of leave our <laughs> let's leave our listeners hanging there. You're going to have to come back and find out what what what's next. Um, it might be part two of Babel. It might be might be something else. So we'll we'll see. Um, do remember um, that you can find out all the details about the podcast at our webpage, which is coresci.org forward slash podcast. That's C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G forward slash podcast, uh, along with show notes for all of our episodes. Uh, keep your questions and comments coming in. Uh, we love to hear from our viewers and listeners. Uh, you can email us at podcast at uh, don't forget to subscribe, hit the notification bell so that you get notified of uh, future content, like and share our episodes, tell your friends. Uh, if you're listening to this on a uh, traditional podcast streaming platform, um, leave us a positive review. Um, th that's very much welcomed. And of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, as we always uh, do, we'll end our episode by uh, telling you how you can uh, donate to us so that we can keep this content coming. Uh, if you would like to give to the work of Biblical Creation Trust, uh, then you can go to our website uh, at biblicalcreationtrust.org. Uh, on the homepage, there's a donate button which you can uh, click on and it takes you to a giving page and all of the options for giving are listed there. Um, including direct bank transfers and uh, online giving and PayPal if you're outside of the UK. And uh, Todd, uh, for Core Academy of Science, how do people uh, give to Core Academy? So you can give to Core Academy. You can find us on the web at coresci.org slash connect. There'll be links to all of our social media where you can follow us there. And you can also find a link there to uh, support us. You could also go directly to coresci.org slash donate uh, where you'll find as Paul said, information about how to donate online or send us a check uh, or, you know, if you see me in church, slip me some cash. That's fine. I'll do that. I'll take that too. <laughs> okay. That's great. Well, that's it for this time. Um, and we'll see you in a fortnight's time. Thanks guys. Bye-bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at corsi.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.